I am Pete Stearns, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to share and worship with you all today. Let us open our Bibles up to Romans chapter 6. Now, Romans is one of Apostle Paul's greatest works, and it's an opportunity for him to begin expressing the theology and the nuances of our faith to the early church. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know also that we will live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. This is quite literally a passage of life or death. And as we dive into it today, it will begin to reveal the mysteries of God's grace for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that so often we abuse your grace. So often we misunderstand what you did on the cross for us. And Lord, we find ourselves living in our old lives. Lord, we are reluctant to embrace a life free from sin. We are reluctant to dive headfirst into your great will. But Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts. Lord, that you would usher us into this new way of living. Lord, that you would hush the whispers in our head telling us not. And Lord, that we would experience life to the fullest in your great plan for us. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago, my wife, Brittany, finished up something called the 21-Day Sugar Detox. 
And when she first told me she was going to do this, I assumed that this was some sort of New Year's resolution to get rid of sweets and cookies and candies and ice creams. And so I nodded along. But as she continued to explain, I realized that it was so much more than that. Brittany told me that she was going to have to go without all grains for 21 days. This meant no bread or crackers or snacks. She was going to set aside dairy for 21 days. So no milk or cheese. And not only was she going to set aside the tasty treats that we enjoy for dessert, but also setting aside any type of sugar. Sugars in fruits like apples and grapes. Now the idea of the detox is to purge your body from all the toxins that you are inadvertently consuming. That our bodies are being weighed down by these toxins and not living to their fullest. And that if we're able to reset, we will give our bodies a chance to become more productive. And at the time, Brittany had been feeling rather exhausted. She had been feeling like she had some tension headaches and was not feeling very productive in her days and was feeling like her mood was being affected by the foods that she was eating. And so she launched into this detox. It ended up being much, much more difficult than she could have ever anticipated. It was not just a diet, but it was a reframing of how she perceived food. It changed the way that she shopped for groceries. It changed how we made our meals together. We no longer could go out to restaurants unless we had already gone over the menus and looked for a restaurant that might accommodate this diet. There were actually multiple times that we had to turn down friends' invitations to come over for dinner because it was going to be too confusing to explain the parameters of this diet to them. It absolutely changed her life for 21 days. And I'm a witness to this, that after 21 days, she was completely different. She had renewed energy. She no longer felt those same body aches that she had before. She had a better, more positive disposition. And she felt more productive in her day-to-day. Now, if you know me, you know that this diet was completely outside of what I understand. I'm what many people might call a junk food connoisseur. If you're looking for a good cheeseburger, I can tell you about 10 restaurants in the area that can meet your need. I can tell you the best places to get chili cheese fries or my favorite fried pickles. And I measure ice cream by the carton rather than the bowl. Earlier this week, though, I noticed that it was starting to catch up with me. I was feeling rather sluggish at work, and I was getting exhausted and tired more easily. I found myself dragging through my preparations for this Sunday. I had tension in my shoulders and headaches that I couldn't seem to shake. And so I thought to myself, I need to find some sort of multivitamin or protein shake that will rejuvenate my body. So I was sitting in the car with my wife on Wednesday, and I began sharing my plan with her. And she turned to me and she said, you need the sugar detox. And horrified, I said, no. (laughs) You see, I wasn't looking to change the things that I enjoyed. 
I wasn't looking to change the way that I ate. I was instead looking for a supplement that might rejuvenate my energy, a protein shake that would ease my headaches, something that I could bring alongside the life that I was currently living and would help me in my weakness. This is what I so often do in my faith as well. And this is what Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6. Just prior to this chapter, he is, he's telling this group of new Christians what it means to experience God's grace. And he says that God's grace abounds in our weakness. In the darkest of places, God's grace shines brightest. And this group of people's logical conclusion is... Well, great, I'll keep on sinning for the glory of God so that he might be seen in my sin. And Paul turns to them, and in verses 1 and 2, he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? You see, Paul understands That if we understand grace this way, we are completely misconstruing its core value. Grace is not a supplement to be applied in our need. Grace is not a multivitamin to be taken to rejuvenate us when we're exhausted and tired. The famous theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, cheap grace is a supplement to the lives we're already living. And if we practice cheap grace, it is a testimony to our misunderstanding. Paul continues in verse 5, and he says, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, the first thing that jumps out is we will also be raised to life as he was. It's exciting, it's exhilarating. This new freedom. In John 3, 3, we hear Jesus tell us that in order to live new life, we must be born again. And this is a concept that we as American Christians embrace. The idea of new life, second chances, new opportunities. This is the American dream, isn't it? In January, my brother and sister-in-law had their first child. This is my nephew, Lincoln James. And when Lincoln came into this world, he brought with him joy that our family hadn't experienced before. And as he's continued to grow, he started to interact with the world around him with curiosity and marvel. 
when we hear of new life, when we hear of being born again, this is what we're grasping. This is what we're desiring. But our fatal flaw is that new life cannot come without first dying to the old. As Paul is talking to the Jews and Gentiles that have just become Christians, he's pulling on some imagery that they are very familiar with. You see, previously in the Jewish tradition, if a non-believer was going to be baptized into the faith, they quite literally had to leave everything they knew behind them. Now, I'm not just saying they left their sin and their previous religion behind. In fact, they left their community their friends, their occupation, and even their family behind. And when they were baptized, they came out and were ushered into a new life within this Jewish community. New friends, new partnerships, new families, new opportunities. And they left their old life behind. So as Paul talked to them, he's saying it is the same with Christ's crucifixion. That when you enter into the faith, You die to your old life. Grace is not a topical sin treatment plan, but rather grace is a purge of the toxins of sin in our life that ushers us into a new existence in Christ. So often we try to exist in this transient reality between our old life and our new life. Going to which other one feels comfortable at the moment. Certainly I turn to God when I am feeling broken and tired and exhausted and hurt. But otherwise I'm quite comfortable living in this life of of sin. And Paul is saying it cannot work that way. In order for new life, this life must cease to exist. It's easier said than done. When I was 16 years old, my high school soccer team headed off to the Columbia River in Washington for a team bonding retreat. And as we loaded into the cars, the guys on the team began rapidly talking about these cliffs that we were going to jump off of. Now, I was pretty unfamiliar with this. In fact, I hadn't even jumped off the diving board at my local pool. And so as they talked excitedly, dread filled my body. As they told us about these 60-foot rock structures that were erected out of the water, I panicked. They talked about jumping off and having time to think about what was going on around you before crashing into the water below. (laughs) That if you jumped off the wrong way, you could break a bone. I was overwhelmed. And so when the day came to go out onto the river, I sought every excuse I could to avoid jumping off that cliff. If some of the guys were playing a pickup soccer game, you better believe that's where I was. If one boat was going out tubing while others went to cliffs, I acted like I was the most avid tuber there was. But finally, at the end of the day, I got roped into going to the cliffs. And we pulled up, and to my horror, I realized that they weren't kidding. 
these cliffs were enormous. And one at a time, my friends climbed up the shore to the cliff and launched themselves into the air. Finally, it came my time. And with panic in my heart, I got out of the boat, got onto the shore, and I could hear the voices in my head saying, don't do this. This does not make sense. You are definitely going to hurt. There's a pretty good chance you're going to die, Pete. You are comfortable standing right here on the land. You're as happy as could be. What could this possibly do for you? And I got up to the edge of the cliff, and I stood there, legs trembling, heart pounding. My friends below were chanting, jump, jump, jump. My heart was saying, don't, don't, don't. But as is with most teenage boys, the words and pressures of my friends won out. And I launched myself into the air and was immediately filled with regret. (laughs) What have I just done? But quickly, that regret was replaced with complete and utter exhilaration. A total loss of control. Feeling the wind beneath me rushing past my body. Experiencing what it must feel like to fly. My friends were right. I could process through it all as I plunged towards the water until into the water I went. And I popped out to the cheers of the guys around me. Quickly, we swam back to the shore. And this time, the voices weren't as loud. And I launched off. The next time, they were even quieter. Even quieter so. Until finally it became second nature and I didn't even have to think about it. I just climbed up to the edge and launched myself into the water. Isn't this what Paul is talking about? A complete and utter loss of control. A launching of ourselves into God's plan. Not being able to stop. Regretting it a little, but then being overwhelmed by the exhilaration of this life to the fullest. In verse 11, Paul says this. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This word consider in the Greek is much more similar to calculate. To literally calculate your debt. And Paul is saying, look at the sin in your life and then look at the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf and recognize that this sin no longer has any power. These whispers are speaking lies. He calls us back to Christ on the cross being crucified and with his last breath saying, it is finished. And so we too as we stand on the edge of the cliff, can proclaim, it is finished. Sin no longer has a grip on my life. Sin no longer 
permeates everything that I do. I am free to launch myself into God's will. Oh, don't you wish that this was our reality? I don't know about you, but I feel much more familiar with the little boy first learning to swim. Sliding along the edge of the pool, gripping the edge, what's comfortable, what's safe, until they release and doggy paddle into the depths, filled with excitement, a smile on their face, and then realize that they could drown in swimming back quickly and holding onto the edge. Then again, pushing off and doggy paddling into the middle, once again being overwhelmed with exhilaration, but also overwhelmed with fear and heading right back. How often do we do the same thing? We hold on to our lives that are comfortable. We release and we swim into the middle for a service project, a retreat away, an opportunity to work with the poor in our city. And we feel exhilarated. But instead of continuing into the depths, we quickly retreat to what's been comfortable. And we hold on tightly. After a long week working, we find ourselves exhausted, burnt out from our day to day. And so we go to worship in order to be rejuvenated, to be brought back to life. We swim to the center of the pool and we feel the exhilaration of being in the presence of our God. But instead of staying there, we quickly swim back and forget about everything until the next Sunday. We hear about a ministry or a missionary that has a need that must be met. A dollar amount that seems reasonable to us. And so we write a check. We swim into the middle of the water. We are exhilarated by the need that we just met. But instead of continuing further to see what more God can do, we swim back and hold on to the edge, patting ourselves on the back for attempting to go into the deep water. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead. But now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. God's grace is inescapable. And I wish that there was an easy five-step plan to make it more comfortable. I wish that we could slowly read scripture or step into worship and find ourselves in this exhilarating life. But just like diving off of a cliff, we have but two choices. To either stand on the edge or thrust ourselves into the unknown. Once you take that step forward, you cannot come back. 
Once you leap off, you lose all control. And you dive in to God's great plan. So how do we do this? How do we as believers sitting here in this sanctuary launch ourselves into God's exhilarating plan? I think my challenge for myself this week and hopefully some of you is to do something in faith that makes you incredibly uncomfortable and you cannot take back. What is it this week that you can do that you are uncomfortable with? And that once you have done it, you cannot go back to the edge and cling on tightly. Maybe for some of us it means going down the street to the neighbor that has a few quirky habits that others seem to avoid and asking them if they might want to come over to our home for a meal. Sure, it might be uncomfortable. You might not know what to say. It might make you a little nervous but it will give you an opportunity to begin sharing community with them in a way that they've probably never experienced before. It'll give you a chance to start showing them what this grace is all about. For others, it means that today as we go home, we're going to log on to the Christchurch website, and we're going to begin perusing the various ministries and finding one that we feel God is tugging our heart to, even though... Our head is telling us, we don't have time for that. We don't have the ability or skills to do that. That's uncomfortable. That's not a good fit for me. And instead of listening to those voices, we're going to send an email or call somebody and ask how we can get involved. You're going to talk to Eric Camfield and say, I want to start a community Bible study in my neighborhood. Have you ever done it before? No. Do you have any background to do it? No. But I'm going to launch myself into the unknown. It's turning to Sandy or Dave and saying, I want to work with our kids, the youth of this church. I want to see lives transformed. I don't have any background in this, but I'm launching off into the unknown. It's finding men like Mark Davies and saying that, I'm willing to go with you into the prisons of this area to begin spreading God's word in our prison fellowship ministry. Make a commitment to a ministry that you're incredibly uncomfortable with and one that you cannot take back. For some, it will mean writing the biggest check we have ever written, one that makes us nervous about our finances and giving it to a ministry or a person that we believe is doing God's work here on earth. And not just meeting the needs that they are asking for, but giving them more and saying, what can God do with this money through you? I can promise you two things. If you do any of these, you will immediately regret it. But that regret will quickly be replaced by the exhilaration of losing control and diving headfirst into God's great plan for you. And each time we do it, we will climb back to that shore 
and the whispers in our head will become quieter and quieter and quieter as we fully immerse ourselves in this complete and overwhelming grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to experience your grace in a way that we can't even imagine. Lord, we thank you that even though when we lose control, you still carry us through. Lord, we thank you that you offer us a life like we could never expect. A life free from the temptations of burdens of sin. A life free from worldly responsibility. A life of reckless abandon anchored in your grace. Lord, we pray that today as we stand on the edge of the cliff that we would not take a step back but instead have the courage to leap forth into your arms. We pray this in your name. Amen.